Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of the Chirping the Cats podcast. David Dwork, your host, here with you for once again another episode as we are uh, continuing to do the podcast under quarantine. I hope everybody out there is staying home and staying safe. And uh, today I've got a really special podcast for you. It's extremely special for me because my my hockey life basically may not have happened if not for watching this particular person play and uh, kind of projected me onto my path. So I want to welcome Florida Panthers great and just goaltending great in general, John Van Beesbrook. John, thank you so much for uh, taking a little time with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Dave, thanks for having me with you. And uh, like you opened, I wish everybody out there uh, safety and, um, and social distancing. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a crazy time right now, man. And, you know, that's kind of why I'm trying to pump out a few more of these podcasts a little bit more regularly, because so many people are just kind of stuck at home and, you know, looking for different things to do. So uh, any any additional hockey content, especially for all the Panther fans out there, uh, all the best, right? I hear you. I hear you. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about um, is just kind of like go through your career a little bit. But I, I know that your rookie season, you were only 21 when you were a rookie, which nowadays seems almost crazy. You never see a goalie that young uh, make it in the NHL. It's very rare. But in your rookie season, you got to play for two of the most influential names in USA hockey, in Herb Brooks and Craig Patrick. Uh, just what was that like as such a young goaltender getting to play for such influential people? Yeah, it was very unreal because I think everybody knows that Herb Brooks was the 1980 uh, USA Hockey Olympic gold medal winning coach. And with him was uh, Craig Patrick at the time as an assistant coach. And then on to New York they went. And um, oddly enough, Craig became, Craig Patrick became the general manager, um, family legacy uh, with the New York Rangers. And hired her so i remember walking into madison square garden and um you know it was um very intimidating going into one of the most famous arenas in the world and meeting probably one of the most famous coaches in the world and um just uh his energy his his level of professionalism and uh you know his intensity just was you know really magnifying that that gets portrayed in the movie a miracle is how um, his speeches were legendary and, and how he was really a great motivator. So it was a, it was a, it, it was a great time for a young player like myself and my eyes, my eyeballs were probably never as wide. <laughs> I can only imagine, especially at that time. Cause I mean, 1980 is just a few years past. So it was probably still pretty fresh in everybody's mind. And, and you mentioned how, uh, how great of a motivator as he was. Uh, did anything stand out from your rookie year? Um, any lessons that he may have taught you or anything like that? Well, one lesson, you know, mostly from practice because Herb um, liked to run really high-level, high-intensity and fast-paced practices, but that didn't always spell good for goaltenders. <laughs> and one time there was such a wave of shots that I couldn't even get up, and I, I just kind of yelled out, you know, slow down. <laughs> and he came he came over to me and he's like hey don't you ever say that again or i'll, I'll ship you so far the hockey news won't be able to find you <laughs> oh, so i was a little intimidated and and, and really out of breath <laughs> especially back then the equipment was like twice as heavy as it is now so i can only imagine what it was like going through those practices 
But um, moving ahead to, to the following year, um, your sophomore year in the NHL, the Rangers went on, I guess they started their run late in the season. You were kind of competing with Pittsburgh a bit just to get into the playoffs that year, and you guys did end up squeaking in as the eighth seed. And then you guys just became giant killers, basically. You took down the two two best teams in the Eastern Conference, and if memory serves, the only team that was any better was the juggernaut Edmonton Oilers back then. And that must have been just a, a pretty amazing experience uh, as a young goaltender, your first taste of Stanley Cup playoff hockey to go on a run like that. Yeah, it was a, a good run. And, you know, what happens with teams uh, not that different than the St. Louis Blues, not that we won that year, but from the similarity of how you catch fire at a certain period of time, and, and these seasons are so long, they're marathons that sometimes an addition of a player, um, a style of the game, or a shift by a tactical shift by the coaching staff. And at that time, Ted Sater was our coach kind of unheralded, um, in the national hockey league and, and trying to get us to play a, a quick up tempo game that trapped a bit too. So it was a good combination and we had some really fine young players on our team. Um, Kelly Miller, Mike Ridley, James Patrick, to name a few, so we did have a combination of, of old and young that were, were happening, but I think the the part that um, you know really took off is when you get the when you eke in, you survive, and you just make it in. Nobody expects you to win, and then you're you're facing the best team in the National Hockey League, at least in the East at that time, and and that was the Philadelphia Flyers, and we beat them, and you know that was uh, a David and Goliath type of series, and. I had a good series, and uh, we went on then to the Washington Capitals, who tied, I think, Philly in points. And right up there with the top three teams in the league were, were as you stated, Edmonton, Philadelphia, and Washington. And we beat two of the best there and then went on to face. The team that went on to win was the Montreal Canadiens. Um, but Montreal had some upcoming players, too. But I think it was a time where, you know, for us, we were – a young and old team and you know most teams are looking for that chemistry like the Panthers today are looking for that chemistry of young and old and it's close to being there but you definitely have to get saves at the right time you have to score goals at the right time and for us confidence came and you know um, we we just tried to string it on as long as we could. It's it's pretty impressive to be able to do that, and as you say, just with such a nice mix of veterans and youth, and everything just kind of has to fall into place. As you saw, you mentioned with St. Louis last year, so many things, it just has to be a perfect scenario, and that's why it's so hard to win the Stanley Cup. And moving on to when you came to Florida, uh, obviously you established your career at that point. I believe you're around 30 years old, so certainly uh, you'd been in the league long enough, you knew what was going on, but... Um, Coming from the Rangers, which is just a globally known team, one of the most popular that there is, uh, you come to Florida and then all of a sudden you become the face of a brand new franchise. So is that a role that you were comfortable with or one that you embraced at the time? Well, I mean, at the time, you know, playing for an original six team, as you stated, it's, it's a lot different because there's things that have been in place like an alumni, um, you know, the people that were around us, uh, as players were all the greats of the past, the Eddie Jockamans of the world. And, you know, all of a sudden 
you've got to create all that. There is, there is no history. And so it was a bit intimidating, um, you know, and then overcoming some obstacles such as, you know, playing hockey in a Southern, you know, a Southern climate that everybody says it can't work in trying to create a professional environment. And, and then, you know, as it, as it turns to the player yourself is, you know, what are you going to bring to the table that could help this team win? And what do you have to do to do that? And, um, you know, when, when you, when we first were enamored by after all the selections and the teams and things get established and you start seeing a name of the team, a lot like what we're anticipating with Seattle coming in now, when you're anticipating a name and then building an identity, um, you don't know how all that is going to go. Um, I didn't even know that Panthers existed in the state of Florida. And, <laughs> you know, because most people, when they put out there for what the name was going to be, you know, um, I think people were, were surprised a bit by the Panthers. So all that, you know, is, is good and in the way of notoriety, but then you have to go to work and we're, you know, I'm very grateful for our coaching staff at the time, Roger Nielsen led it and um, put together a great staff with Craig Ramsey and others. And, and then, you know, at the time we, you know, we not like Vegas had the opportunity to get a lot of current stars, but we did get, guys that were well-known players um they just weren't you know stars in the league but good in their own right and and um how the team got put together by bill tory and at that time bob clark and we knew that all you ask for as an athlete is a team that can compete and and be a professional every night and and because that's what you can bring to the table as an athlete you can't bring it for someone else you can't wave a magic wand to make someone score, block a shot, or make a save. So you can only look as far as yourself. So, but when you have a team of guys that are committed to doing that, um, that and I thought that that was the staple of, of how we started and it became our identity that everybody came ready to work every game. And, you know, if we, if we showed up every, you know, and wring the towel dry, each and every one of us, we stood a chance to, to win some games. And that, that was a recipe for us for the first, you know, five years of the franchise. I have spoken to a few of your, your former teammates from, from your Panther days, and they described you as a very routine-oriented guy, especially on game days, that you were extremely focused. You didn't really you talk to any of your teammates. You didn't talk to the media. Um, and, and that kind of goes into what you were saying about being a professional every night and just kind of having that mindset to, to get ready to go to work, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly couldn't overpower anybody with my size or <laughs> anything like that. So yeah, I'm a five eight goalie too, so I feel you in that one, buddy. Yeah, and there's probably a lot of lot of people out there wondering, you know, like how do you do it as an undersized athlete? I mean, uh, you know, whatever sport, I think the undersized person. I didn't view myself as undersized. I view myself as as a decent athlete. Um, you know, trying to perfect a craft. You know, like goaltending is a bit of a craft. It's a it's a really different position, and but the mental side really was something that I thought I could engage in and learn on and and repeat and repeat and repeat and 
and try to remember the things that I did well and not dwell on the things that I didn't do well or some of my shortcomings. And, you know, mentally as, you know, as a 30, as you stated, I was 30 years old at the time. So I was a little bit more mature. Um, you don't get influenced by, you know, being a big draft pick, the fans, the media, all that stuff. You just, you start to form um, a good mindset and there's such power in forming you know, it borderlines on arrogance, it does. And I didn't want that to be that way, but I had to go about the business in a real professional manner in order to give ourselves and my team a chance to win every night. And it, it didn't always work out, um, but that's the way I had to approach it. And, you know, I did approach it and I didn't, you know, the intention there is not to offend a, anybody, a fan, uh, anybody really, but you have to manage your life and, um, you know, when you're, when you're asked to do something for a city, for an area, you know, and you want to do it to the best of your ability, you got to sell out. And in my view, that's the way I was able to sell out. Yeah. And that was um, something else that I, that I heard a lot when I kind of was doing a little background before our call was that you had an incredible mental strength, like that you had developed. So you were so strong mentally that you couldn't really get shaken out there. And that, as a goalie, like, I know how hard that can be at times because so much that happens on the ice is out of your control. And I, I can't even imagine what it's like playing at, at the highest level that there is. So being, I don't know if that's something that happened when you were younger or maybe as you got uh, further along in your career, but how did you develop that, that strong mentality to where you didn't really let anything bother you? Yeah, it does. It takes time to develop that, um, you know, because... The first, you know, I mean, people have talked about being in the zone and used all these box-type terms to put someone in to say that they're there. You know, it's an everyday thing. I mean, every day it's different. It might be raining. It might be sunny. It might be you might wake up tired. You might wake up with a nice jump in your step. You don't know that, but you have to be aware of yourself and be a good self-evaluator of what it takes. Um, and I think that the other part is being able to compartmentalize things because, you know, I mean, we woke up every day and we, we swung on the emotion of all the things, you know, that currently exist. We'd, we'd hide under a rock and not want to come out because it's just, it, there's so much fear. So you have to engage in that and, and look at it straight on and believe that you can, you know, succeed in the game. You know, the first, the greatest thing is acceptance in the game. When, when someone really becomes a star in the game, the thing that the biggest hurdle for them to get over is acceptance. There's a lot of young players with great talent coming into the league right now, uh, but they just don't feel accepted. So, you know, that's a battle for them. Um, you know, people can say, well, just believe in yourself. Well, you know, waking up every day and just going, well, I'm better than I was yesterday. Isn't, it, it may solve you a personal problem, but somebody else isn't going to believe in you. And, and then you have teammates, family dynamics, and what have you. So you got to be able to compartmentalize. And then you have to integrate yourself and adapt to the team. Like, what are the strengths of the team? Where do you fit? Understanding where you fit, when to speak up, when to be quiet. You know, and, there, and all these things go into the chemistry of the team. And, and a lot of people go about it in a different way. Uh, today we see different athletes have success, and we think that it's all just because you know, you can sink a free throw, for, you know, or a shot. 
cafe whenever you want, but then you forget that there's all the other elements that are there and it's not just God-given ability. So it's a long-winded answer to say the way that I did was try to compartmentalize all these things and not let them affect, you know, who I am as a person and how I was going to play that day. And I tried to control the environment rather than it controlling me. Now, uh, we touched on a little bit, you, you got started with the Panthers and then obviously uh, that amazing run in 1996. Um, everybody knows already, we don't have to get into it too much, that you coined the phrase rat trick and you're basically, you know, the, the godfather, grandfather, whatever it is of the, the rat throwing tradition here in Florida. But I've always had a kind of a funny question that I wanted to ask you about that. Now, I, I know that you were impressed with what happened that day with, with you know, Melon B hitting the rat in the locker room, scoring two goals. From your perspective, what was more impressive? Was it Melon B scoring two goals in the game, or was it the way he obliterated the rat in the locker room before the game? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, and I've never had it put to me that way. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, when things surprise you, you know, most people, like a rat, for instance, it comes in the room and everybody starts walking on their tiptoes. The thing that enamored me the most and the reason why I love the story, not only because we beat Montreal, not only because uh, Scott scored the two goals and got into a fight, too, by the way, but he was cold as ice. He just one-timed this rat. Like, when it came over to him, he had ice in his veins. He just slapped this thing, and it went right into the side uh, of the wall and right in through it, and we just walked out. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. And... And that was that's Scott Melody. He was he was uh, a cool cool as a cucumber, as they say. Um, now, one other thing I wanted to ask you about about that playoff run is the, something that always kind of stood out to me. You got into a couple goalie fights during that playoff run, and goalie fights are extremely rare, especially nowadays. I mean, maybe in the '90s a little bit more loosey goosey. You obviously you think about like the the rivalry between the the Red Wings and the Avalanche at the time, um, but. What was the Philly series when you got into it with Hextall and then in the in the Eastern Finals when you got into it with, I think it was Barrasso uh, after a game? I mean, is that just like a testament to how high the emotions are at that point and really just kind of letting everything fly and not holding anything back when you get to that, that point of the season? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, obviously the temperature is really hot. And, um, you know, we were a team that wasn't supposed to win and we were winning and we were getting other teams that had more talent, very frustrated with us. And it was showing. And, but what happens when, when a a goalie altercation happens in that manner, things get out of control. And so things did get out of control there. Um, you know, like Hexy's known for having a temper and he, he, showed it that night and it really wasn't much of an affair but you know we we tangled a little bit and then the the part with Barrasso you know Tommy and I were on U.S. teams together I knew him a little bit but he you know he he had a hot temper a bit himself and you know they were getting frustrated and I put it I put it mostly on them because you know I'm, I you know again going back to the 5-8 thing <laughs> I wasn't going to overpower anybody but you weren't going to let your teammates down and you have to have that scrap ability. Um, that may not be a word, but scrap ability is probably a hockey term that every team needs to have in order to win. I don't think you're going to win without it. 
Uh, if you look at the best teams today, you know, and maybe one of the best lines in Boston, I mean, they have that scrap ability to them where, you know, it's not just their talent, it's their ability to compete and not take anything. And I think that's probably the biggest piece of chemistry in every team that wins a championship is the scrap ability. Like, I look at sports, and I'm a huge sports fan, and I see the way that, that teams that win have to scrape for a next, the next yard, for a battle for the ball, you know, for a puck or what have you. And, um, you know, at the same time, you got to keep your wits about you and not take penalties and things like that. So um, those are the things that are hard to find uh, today in today's day. Um, you know, they were probably more – old school yesteryear type of things but um people really take notice on by teams and players that that have that element now when you think back and you know i just kind of go back into your mind and, and revisit that that playoff run in 96 are there any moments or any saves that that stand out in your mind like one that always pops out for me is like that amazing glove save you had an overtime on Ozelinch in game four but um, yeah, when when you let yourself just kind of like reminisce about it, is there anything that stands out to you? Um, not a moment. Um, I, I think that if I had to pick one, it would probably Tommy Fitzgerald's goal against Pittsburgh from outside the blue line that dipped on Barrasso that really showed us we were going to win and, and go to the Stanley Cup. And um, you know, I, I thought of it; it couldn't happen to a better guy. Uh, too, because you know Tommy wasn't known to score a lot, but he had that scrap ability. He he played a way that that we that was the identity identity of our team was were guys uh, Fitzgerald. I mean, um, but scoring that goal and sending us to the Stanley Cup uh, that probably would be the one moment I would pick. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about when, with uh, in terms of the finals and that run and everything was something that it was just it always struck me as odd and i'm guessing for you as well that the nhl suddenly decided they wanted to enforce a rule with you when you got to the finals in regards to the way you taped your stick and yeah i mean for for a goalie just in general where you can be a very superstitious bunch and like i get that well, i'll let you tell the story but just the fact that they decided to wait until you reach the pinnacle you reach the finals and then they're going to drop drop something on you like that it just seemed so odd to me yeah, I mean, um, I was a bit surprised. And so, the you know, I taped my stick, and, and at the end of every stick, there's a butt end to it. And um, there was nothing special to mine other than the fact that it was, we had, I had taped it with red tape. And all throughout the playoffs, I just used red tape. But they, they were claiming a rule that you couldn't have a colored – tape on the end of your stick so they had to put a little white strip of white tape at the end which seemed kind of foolish but it was meant to you know i don't know where it came from it came from colorado and you know trying to get it under my skin and um you know it, it was agitating i got to agree i got to admit i mean for for the nhl to come to at that point and I wouldn't say change a rule, but enforce one. You know, it came in through Billy Smith and, and his novice stick, and he was known for butt-ending guys and whatnot. But the the point is, it was it was just silliness and foolishness that that it would even become a story or a topic 
and I, you know, it focused on one player, myself, and you know that's, you know, that's not right in in, in my eyes, and I, I still feel that way. But I mean, look at I had a lot of things happen in that way to me to try to get me off my game, and you know, not that I was better than anybody else, but why pick on me? No, for sure. And, and to, like I said, it just for me, the timing just made no sense whatsoever. Like, if somebody noticed it at that point or whatever it was, like, you got four to seven games left in the season. There's two teams left. Just, just let let you guys go out there and play your game. And why, why get into anybody, get into anybody's head or mess around? Like, I just, as somebody who's been a Panther fan my entire life, and I've been lucky enough to be, you know, turn it into a career at this point. Like, it just. It's always kind of been like a thorn in my brain. Like, why would you do that at that time of the year? So I can only imagine, I'm, I'm sure, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, if it still kind of buds you, it just goes to show, like, why would they do that? Yeah, and look at, I mean, obviously we're beyond that now, and, and that's fine. Um, and, you know, I mean, does anybody really care about the tape on the end of a stick today? Probably not. And, you know, it's just... Um, you know, at that time during that experience, it just felt like, you know, it was something that they had to do. And look, at I'm, I'm really over it now, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, the thing is, is that we lost and, um, you know, some of these tactics that go into why you lose, how you lose. I mean, they, they stick with you for a long time because you don't, you didn't want it to go down that way, but it did. So. We'll live with it. All right, moving on to something maybe a little bit more interesting. Uh, during your career, you started in the early early eighties. You got into the NHL in the mid eighties, and you lasted all the way into into the early two thousands. Goaltending went through some pretty significant changes throughout the course of your career between the styles, techniques, and equipment, and uh, it just ended up as like a huge revolutionary change in goaltending during your playing days, from more of a stand up style to kind of a hybrid. And now it's everybody's basically just straight on butterfly. And for you personally, like you started out as more of a stand-up goaltender, and then just watching as your career progressed, you became more into the butterfly style. And then when you arrived in Florida, it was almost uh, not completely, but certainly uh, you were going down a lot more and and uh, using the lower body. So I just wanted to get your take on that from from your career's perspective, how you kind of evolved with goaltending. Yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, going through a big change on the way to where it is now um, and you know you're, you, the game follows trends and you know from the time that um, I broke in it was a 21 team league so you know basically uh, 42 goalies in the National Hockey League and you start paying attention or you've always paid attention to what works for other other goalies and you know but there is also a, a part to it that you're being coached and so i mean it, it, there are some standard fundamental rules of, of the art of goaltending that you had to maintain standing up or going down was one of those strong fundamental pieces that you know if you didn't stand up on a shot you were known to be afraid of it and you know there were there were other kinds of things come play at that time but you know with the with the pads starting to change um equipment starting to go to 
different types of um, foams and sponges and things of that nature. You're trying to adapt with all that. So my adaptation to the style of it is probably more based, you know, out of the Tonio, Tony Esposito style um, into where it is today. But even for guys like Tony who did a lot of pad stacking and poke checking and risking, it was very successful and, you know, very uh, athletic and acrobatic. I mean, Tony Esposito probably changed the game more than any other single goalie in the history of the game. And his innovations were probably the most significant as well. And whether it was with his pads or the, the mesh he put between his legs or the cheater that it was actually called between the thumb and the wrist cuffs and the, the eyes being covered with screens that turned into the masks of today. I mean, the guy was the greatest innovator in the history of goaltending. Where it got to today and, you know, you know, where I left off in the early 2000s was just, you know, the fact now that a 6'2 goalie, anybody under 6'2", will not be drafted or, you know, rarely play. I mean, there's only a couple in the league that that are uh, that are under that certain height. So it would, you know, I wouldn't have gotten a chance. So that's all that to say is I wouldn't have even gotten a chance to play based on today. Like um, goalies that were small were known as being more athletic. Um, take nothing away from the Sean Burks and the tall goalies, the Ken Dryden's. But today, everybody has to be tall and athletic and be able to wear the equipment and use it in the functional way that it's actually created, not the other way around where the goalie, the, the equipment's tailored around the goalie's features. And, you know, whether you're right-handed, left-handed, or, you know, have one size foot bigger than the other, everything is now just a cookie-cutter thing. And I'm not bad naming it it's just the fact that while these guys are strong and athletic and tall we're seeing that style being repeated with every goalie and there's very little change and so now you know maybe Vasilevsky does things a little bit more than a little different than Bobrovsky but pretty well the same form and function so I just see it as a lot of the fundamental things are changing into different fundamentals and you know, it's not like, um, you know, players that um, may be better athletes than the other but smaller will get that chance. So how will you ever know unless you, you, you give that person an opportunity? But, you know, so many so much analytics, so much data out there now, so much percentage. Yet, you know, I mean, what's, you know, who's the top 15 goalies in, in the National Hockey League and why do you rate them that way? The number one thing they'll say is probably compete, not just style. So there you go, back to that competitor. And, you know, whether you go to, you know, I mean, I was able to play with Marty Brodeur at the end of my career, who's a, you know, wasn't really known for his compete, but more for his style and the way that he loved playing the game. But he was an extreme competitor. People don't know how competitive he was. And, and so I, I think that, today we're seeing a new age and of goalies and and i take my hat to them and and they're they're great athletes in their own way and they're they're just playing to that fundamental yeah it's interesting 
to hear you talk about kind of the way that the the size of goaltenders has evolved into what it is now. It, you know, a quick personal story for me I, when I was playing juniors, one of my first tryouts, uh, a coach <clears throat> he walked into the locker room to talk to the team before we hit the ice. He took one look at me, and I'm five eight on a good day, and he told me to stop getting dressed. He said, "No, you're you're too small. Just you know, don't worry about it." And I was maybe 18, 17, 18 years old at the time, and at the time I was in shock, but it, it, as the years went by, I kind of, I don't want to say I understood it because it always stuck with me and, you know, it's been a kind of a feeling of contention, but it just kind of goes to show, as you were just saying, maybe uh, letting some of the smaller guys are missing out on opportunities that they would have gotten otherwise. So it's just uh, interesting that you kind of brought that up and I was like, yeah, I remember that. But anyway, I wanted to ask you about your equipment before we wrap things up. Um, I know you've always used brown pads and gloves uh, throughout your career. Um, and as we were just talking about kind of the way that the, uh, the style changed, uh, how, how did you maintain kind of the same, the same models and the same equipment brand? Um, and a lot of goalies switched to like the, uh, back then it was like the Toho stuff and the more butterfly friendly stuff. Uh, but you, you always stuck with Brown. Yeah, I think, uh, John Brown, um, the equipment manufacturer became a good personal friend and just, um, Taylor made a lot of the product around me and um you know it was uh it was fun to be a part of that i mean his his chest and arm gear you know where people don't didn't don't really see it because it's not exposed was was probably one of the single most effective pieces of equipment to wear and and to today you know the chest and arm pieces that are out there are all Taylor made after a brown um, creation. So I thought that John had a good creator mind and, you know, I wanted to follow his principles of how he created things. And, um, you know, he asked me questions about, about being a hybrid type of goalie and going down and some of the inner leg pieces. And, you know, so we had a good relationship and I think that was basically it. I mean, um, you know, I, I struggled, for a bit with some of the, the catching gloves and things like that because um, at that time, you know, the catching glove was radically being changed. And uh, But we worked it out and, and things, you know, got on the right track. And just with, with plastics and molds and things, the way they were changing from leather and, and such, you know, you needed more protection because – the, the the sticks were getting stronger the, the shots were coming faster and you know we i ended up with broken fingers most weeks you know so most people don't know how exposed your catching glove really is and how many times i broke my hand and had to play with it i mean it was uh often and it was often that you'd just be like you know dreading a shot that you'd have to catch um but you know, that always worked in the mental part too. But I mean, practice time, you know, you'd see anywhere from 250 to 500 shots in a practice and have to catch a lot of them. So, you know, you really had to be careful with it. And yeah, so, I mean, you learn to manage through that, but John Brown, it was more of a relationship with him and his manufacturing abilities. Now the one piece of equipment that I, I definitely wanted to ask you about um, is your mask 
just because you had one of the more iconic, memorable paint jobs on your mask from when you first came to Florida. And I'll, I've always been curious, did you have any uh, input on that design at all? Is there any kind of a story behind that? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of one. Um, you know, the creator of that mask, Don Strauss, I, I just reconnected with him after many years of not connecting. Um, he, The original one that he built for me was painted like a natural panther. So the colors didn't really match our team's colors. And I, I, I actually took a jersey with the logo on it and sent it to him and said, I, is there any way of getting that panther on that helmet? And he came up with it, and it was extraordinary. I, I was like, you did it. You know, you actually put the logo on the helmet in design terms. I can't come up with it. I'm not really that creative. I, you know, I draw stick men. So um, <laughs> I just thought that it was such a big hit to match all the colors. And, and um, I, I guess people really liked it and, and you know, the, the scope of it. And, um, you know, it had a real traditional feel to it, too. So um, really enjoyed that mask probably the most out of any of it that I wore. Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's iconic, but one of my, probably my number one favorite throughout all the years, and there's quite a variety nowadays, but um, but yeah, I definitely wanted to touch on that. And um, the last thing I want to get into before I let you go, and again, thank you so much for doing this. Um, just now you're with USA Hockey, and um, you have a pretty prominent role. And I was just, uh, I wanted to ask you, like, as far as transitioning from a player to becoming an executive with USA Hockey. I mean, you played for Team USA. You went to the Olympics in 1998. As we mentioned earlier, you played for Herb Brooks and Craig Patrick. And, you know, with all that history, now you're kind of helping shape the careers of uh, young American players. So how, how did you make that transition? Well, it's, uh, it's a long story of playing and then what you do after playing. <laughs> I mean, I just love the sport. Um, and every aspect of it. And, I, you know, I played, as you mentioned, um, on a lot of Team USA's. I played in five World Championships, four Canada Cups, um, the Olympics, and wore the jersey a lot. And take great pride for being an American. And, um, you know, a bit of a, a time when, you know, U.S.-born players weren't that prominent in the NHL. And um, there were a lot of, uh, hills to climb on that because of the way that the game was uh, managed, um, you know, and to take nothing away from it, it's still a very pro-Canadian game, and um, we honor that and respect it, but I wanted to give something back after I, I got into hockey um, on the management side very quickly, and um, when it got into a time of uh, like around 2007, I wanted to volunteer and get involved. USA Hockey, I had so many friends that were involved. They said, hey, why don't you just come to the meetings and give it a shot? And so I was a volunteer for 10 years before this position. Uh, unfortunately, it came open uh, because of the passing of sudden, of the sudden passing of Jim Johansson, who uh, had a heart attack at the age of 54 and passed. And, um, they turned to me and asked uh, if I wanted to consider the position, being that um, I was 
you know, well-versed with the USA hockey folks. I was well-versed in the junior field and, um, had a lot of connections with people in the sport. And after, you know, being in it for 40 years, it just became a good fit. And now I'm working for USA hockey, probably a position I never thought I would be in, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't really consider myself an executive. <laughs> I, I consider myself just a person that's uh, trying to lead um, our nation uh, to be the best we can be in the sport, um, trying to build our relationships to do so. Uh, our national team development program is probably the best program in the world. And just last season, uh, we had seven of the top 15 picks off of one team in the National Hockey League draft. And one of those picks was Spencer Knight to the Florida Panthers. I was so proud of him being selected by, by a team that I played for, but specifically Florida. And um, knowing the Florida um, legacy, but more so with, with uh, rekindling a relationship with Dale Talon at the World Championships last year, I can't, you know, I can't tell you how great a guy Dale is and his leadership for this organization is 10 star. And, you know, for him to select Spencer in that position as a first round pick knows the value of that position. And, you know, this kid's going to be a legacy goaltender for a long time. Just very proud of the work that I do on a daily basis to be able to communicate and be a steward, a good steward for hockey in the United States and working for the national governing body. You know, we don't get it all right all the time, but, we certainly are not going to be all worked. Well, John, I want to thank you again uh, for spending so much time with me. I didn't mean to take up so much of your time today, but um, but I value it very much. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope that uh, I'm sure that all the Panthers fans listening are going to love hearing from you and hearing some of these old stories as well. Um, and I, again, I wish you nothing but the best moving forward. Obviously, we're in a bit of a crazy time right now. And uh, is a bit of uncertainty with when things are going to get going once again. But, um, you know, for me, a South Floridian American born hockey player, I'll be rooting for you and your boys for sure. Um, but again, just thank you so much for your time. Yep, Dave, have, thanks for having me on. Happy Easter to all your listeners. And, um, you know, keep the faith. We're going to get through this. Absolutely. So, and that's going to do it for uh, this episode of the Chirping the Cats podcast. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Please hit me up on Twitter. If you have any comments at David's Ward, please uh, stay safe and stay home throughout all this. And uh, we'll hit you up for the next time. Okay, everyone? Take care.